Hello and welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In. This is the podcast where we watch and review and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 2,000. This week's movies, we've got The Delta Force from Menachem Golan starring Chuck Norris and we have Young Rebels from director Amir Shervan and starring, of course, the great Robert Zadar. I am your host, Patrick, and I am joined this time by... Uh, this is uh, Jared. I am a... Uh, well, I guess I get co-host credit on the uh, <laughs> Streamed and Screened uh, podcast, and I also talk uh, politics on the uh, On Iowa Politics podcast. I'm an Iowa-based uh, lad. All right. Well, we've got a lot of politics, at least in our first movie. <laughs> um, well, it, kind of in our second one, too. There's a lot of police corruption stuff going but on. More, more overt uh, politics, I would say, in, in, in the movie Delta Force. You know, obviously, we're, we're going to start with De- the Delta Force here. And this is, so it's classic. It's it's a canon film, right? In the past, we've covered one canon film before it was Enter the Ninja I made apparently the mistake because that was directed by Menachem Golan. And I said, I don't think he's really a director. I I thought he was more of a producer. We've done two canon movies. They're both directed by the same guy. So I guess he was a director. I was mistaken on that. But this is one of those kind of rah-rah action movies that, you know, makes you proud to be an American, I guess. It's kind of one of those movies. I mean, I guess... It's a Chuck Norris movie. I, th- I think all of his movies are that pretty much, right? Or at least all the noteworthy ones. <laughs> but uh, Jared, Jared, had you seen the Delta Force before? So I had not uh, seen the Delta Force in its entirety before whatsoever. But it was one of those ones that, you know, when I would go to like walk to Blockbuster when I was a kid, because there was one close enough to me um, where I grew up in Kansas City, that it would always be one that would be on the shelves somewhere that I would notice because I was like vaguely familiar with uh, with Chuck Norris because of uh, Walker sure. Texas Ranger and like the the cover was kind of ridiculous. But no, I I had not actually seen uh, the Delta Force before. I had seen this film once before and I didn't remember much about it. I think it was one of those movies that I like watched when I was just trying to watch, like, as many movies as possible. Sure. When you're, like, basically licking the baggie, trying to find stuff. Because the only real scene I remembered was the car chase scene with uh, Chuck Norris and the other guy in the van when they're being chased all throughout Beirut, I guess. That was, like, the only scene that really stood out to me. I didn't remember anything about the plane, which half the movie takes place aboard the plane. I don't know how I forgot all about that, but... Anyways, we will get into it. How about right now? Well, both of these movies start with some very like early uh, pulsing like synth music right away. Oh yeah. Oh goodness. Okay. So I I I was going to comment on the score of the Delta Force at some point, so we may as well do it right now. But this is a score by Alan Silvestri, who I know from like Forrest Gump and the uh, Brendan Fraser Mummy movies, and you know he's a big big score guy i i think it was a bold choice to go with inspirational sports movie music for this action-packed thriller film i i really i think that main theme which you hear a bunch of times basically whenever chuck norris does anything awesome which arguably not that frequently no like they they, and they (laughs) made needle drop that music so many times like even yes. even though it's the theme, I, I get it. Like, you know, a theme you kind of weave throughout the movie. Too much mm-hmm. theme woven throughout the Delta Force. Yeah. 
It needed more pieces of music, but it would be at home in the movie Hoosiers. You know, just replace the, I think it's Jerry Goldsmith in Hoosiers. Hoosiers score is better, but this would fit in Hoosiers. And it was just so weird. It didn't feel like an action movie theme to me it, it felt like inspirational sports movie <laughs> this, this would have been like a b-side for like the uh, chariots of fire soundtrack like one they were like well it's it's, sure. it's memorable but we can't put this in the movie itself so let's just uh, toss it to the side <laughs> yeah 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 and and of course the young rebel score is basically a b-side to axel f from the beverly hills cop soundtrack of course but We'll we'll get into that when we get into that. America's elite anti-terrorist commandos. Their only mission, to neutralize the enemy. Starring Chuck Norris. Sleep tight, sucker. And Lee Marvin. The Delta Force. The Delta Force begins in Iran in 1980. This is America's initial response apparently to the iran hostage crisis which is a failed military campaign involving this delta force which i guess you know it's i don't know if this is a real thing this delta force stuff but it's basically kind of like seal team six it's like sort of they're basically that right these are the elite and they're they're led by lee marvin who i I'm assuming this is probably one of his last movies. I don't know if he was acting too too much longer after this. But so a helicopter blows up. It's like the first thing we see in the movie. And Chuck Norris, playing a soldier named McCoy, has to go back and save his friend Peterson from said blown up and currently on fire and about <laughs> to blow up even more helicopter. There is a um, flammable barrel or something that Chuck Norris moves out of the way in a not very careful way. It's like right next to an open flame and he kind of just like pushes it around. It's like, I would have been a little bit more careful with that. But anyways, he saves Peterson. But of course the campaign failed. Which is a, is a real campaign by the way. Yes. I was surprised to learn that. Yeah. It's bizarre when a movie of like this quality and like character decides to splice in like real life events Mm -hmm. well the the entire plot is inspired by like a real life event i mean we haven't gotten to the main plot yet but there was something that went on kind of like that i guess yeah because then like dropping all this in that's like actually based in reality if the movie's not good it just feels so like tasteless (laughs) (laughs) yeah well there's there's a there's a sleaze about it, I guess, which oh, yeah. in ge- in general that kind of describes canon films in general, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they're they're not the most subtle filmmakers, generally speaking, and this is probably at least of the canon films that I'm aware of, like one of their most serious films in terms of its I don't want to say dramatic ambition, but just in terms of uh, yeah, kind of the rip from the headlines story basically it's really funny to think of this as one of their more serious movies when this is a movie where a motorcycle farts out rockets yeah well i mean it's not breaking two electric boogaloo i mean that's really what it comes (laughs) down to but yes we will talk about the murder cycle (laughs) later on because i don't know what that was about but it was kind of cool it was like the it 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 
becomes the star of the movie, his magical motorcycle. It's yes. Just, it's just... <laughs> Anyways, so McCoy resigns because I think he's upset that the government didn't heed the Delta Force's warnings. They said it was a disaster to launch this campaign at night or whatever, but it failed. So McCoy resigns and he lives happily on his... I think they say it's like a ranch or something in uh, is it North Carolina. It, it's worth it's it's worth pointing out too that when like the whole like thing happens where he's like I'm done with this or whatever. He also brings up Vietnam and he's like ah oh, they you know and they stabbed us in the back during Vietnam too. He's he's talking to Lee Marvin and then they That's both right. they both grouse about that too. So they 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 drop in uh, something else uh, from history as well. With Lee Marvin, you think they could have even gone back to talk about World War One or something, even. I mean, <laughs> dude is looking old here. <laughs> well, then again, dude, he looked old for 40 years, to his credit, you know. Do you want to guess how old uh, he was in this movie? 68? He Just was, he was only 63. Okay. He's He seems so much older than that. I mean, he's got, like, gray, or, I mean, it's a black and white movie, but he's got, like, white hair in... The man who shot Liberty Valance, which is twenty four years before this, yeah. So he, I think he kind of always looked kind of old too, you know. He it's a little bit of the the Steve Martin thing, you know. You just go yes. gray early, and then people don't notice. Is Chuck Norris's beard military regulation? No, that is not that is not military I mean, regulation. There's no way that wouldn't pass military regulations, and he would not be allowed on the. Uh, the New York Yankees back when George Steiner well, yes. was uh, still in charge. That would go yeah. right off. That's still a thing with the Yankees, isn't it? Because Matt Carpenter had nothing but a mustache this year when he was with them. He normally has a beard. I, I think it might be. They still have, mm-hmm. have a thing about facial hair in uh, in the Bronx. But anyways, so in the present, we are in Athens, Greece, the birthplace of the greatest athlete in the world, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And a bunch of people board a plane. This is, it's, is it ATW Airlines? Because this is based on a, uh, this is based on something that happened with a TWA flight, apparently, which I know virtually nothing about. But it's amazing that they use the <laughs> the same three letters. You think they would have changed it up a bit more? Yeah, it's like a, a lazier version of like, you know how uh, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, how like the name is like IBM, but each letter is one letter before IBM. It's like a lazy. Oh, you know what? I never thought of that actually. Yeah, no, and that was that was intentional too. But like, I guess I didn't case, even know IBM was around back then. I, I probably yeah, never yeah. Made, would have made that connection. Yeah, but like this is like a lazier and stupider version of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely stupider. Sure, I'll give you that. But, anyways, a bunch of people get on this plane. We meet some of our you know characters. There's Martin Balsam, Arbogast himself from Psycho, and we get. George Kennedy as a priest, accompanied by two sisters, and we get Robert Forster playing an Arab. Uh, we got to talk about this, unfortunately. Um, oh man! Well, I I will say it didn't like, and I mean this isn't even damning with faint praise. It's something less than that. It it didn't seem like it was brown face that Robert Forster was doing as much as it was just like bronzer which that might be splitting hairs but like it does sound like the same thing to me but yeah yeah and so not only is that the case but he also has i think 
I, do you think that mustache was real or was the mustache like a planted mustache of some kind? Oh, see, you know, it didn't look distracting to me, so I'm assuming it was real, but I don't know. Robert Forster, who, like we said, plays the, the main terrorist, he grew up this incredible, like, jet black mustache that he must have dyed and is, like, rocking a white suit. Oh, I love the look of him. He just looks like a cool dude. Yeah. I mean, he plays a terrorist, but he looks like a cool dude. He's a cool well, terrorist. I don't know. Yeah, he's a, he's a cool terrorist. And I mean, you know, Robert Forster in like a lot of the movies that he shows up in or in Breaking Bad always just seems like a cool dude. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Whereas yeah. Jackie Brown or uh, one of my personal favorites, Alligator. Yes. To his credit, you know, talk about the brown face slash bronzer or just... If we don't know exactly what they did, we can just talk, we can just describe it as miscasting. Oh yeah, that is that is more than fair, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but regardless of all of that, I think he's actually kind of good in this movie. I, I don't want to say he completely transcends the material to where you don't think about it being a white dude, but he at least like just like he's a good villain. I think he's just like a. I think it's a half decent performance maybe even better than that i don't know yeah i i think he's one of the best things about the movie i i think him and lee marvin are definitely the two even though lee marvin seems like he's ancient are the two best things about the movie because they're both like genuinely great actors and so Mm -hmm. you know no matter what the material is you throw in front of guys like that they're gonna elevate it even when it's you know a sillier movie like this sure well, and, and you you single out those two in particular. In general, this is a pretty loaded supporting cast. Yeah. I mentioned George Kennedy. George Kennedy, not the most flattering. I, I think of George Kennedy as maybe other than Cuba Gooding Jr., probably the one of the most pathetic post-Oscar winning careers. Because he, <laughs> he's a supporting actor for uh, Cool Hand Luke. Great character, great performance. And then he's, I mean, he had Airport, I think. Right, I think he's in that. I haven't yep. seen that. So but he then knows it was his way like, around a plane. Yes, I was thinking that too. Yeah, but but then other than like Naked Gun, which is a completely different thing because it's a comedy and he's poking fun. But like other than that, the types of movies he's in are like The Uninvited, which is a movie about a killer cat inside another cat. I mean, like he's in a lot of those movies. I don't know if it's quite as embarrassing as you know Boat Trip. You know, I, I've been Boat Trip and. Snow Dogs, I mentioned Cuba Gooding Jr. for a reason here. Post-Jerry Maguire, with the exception of the People vs. O.J. Simpson, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s career, not not the best. But, like, I think he's good here. He has a a fairly powerful scene. And and then, obviously, Martin Balsam, who he's in some other canon movies, I'm sure, because I know he's in Death Wish 3, so he might have been, like, a canon regular at this point in his career. But he's just, like, a classic character actor. And his wife is uh, Shelley Winters, who she's kind of... They kind of wasted her, because she's a great actress, and she really not a big part of the movie. Yeah, she's, like, 10th in the credits list, if not even farther down. And then there's that Jewish woman that I really, really, really thought was Joy Behar from The View, and it turns out it isn't. You know who I'm talking about? Yes, um, but I I don't remember who that was either. But I know who you're talking about in the movie. She like has this. Uh, there's a very dramatic scene once the plane gets taken over because the 
The guys are both uh, Lebanese uh, terrorists. They take it over, and she's worried that because they're Jewish that they're going to get uh, targeted, so she has to dramatically like yeah. take this uh, Hebrew-inscribed uh, ring of hers off, mm-hmm. of her, off of her finger. Yeah. Kim Delaney is one of the sisters, probably before she was famous. Um, yeah, it's definitely before NYPD Blue. Got Bose Fenson is the is the pilot who I that's a name I know. I don't really know why I know it, but I do. We got Robert Vaughn, the general, the the um army chief of staff back at the Pentagon. Oh, and then apparently according to Wikipedia, I didn't see him. I was looking for him, but Liam Neeson and Michael T. Williamson are both Delta Force members, uncredited yeah, extras. There, there's a scene apparently near the end of the of the Delta Force where they're like going through, they're sneaking through. I think what's supposed to be a cotton field, and you can see yeah. Liam Neeson for a second uh, okay. there, supposedly. Yeah, well before Liam Neeson, you know, made his huge uh, turn after uh, Taken to do his own uh, operator movies, he was uh, he was hanging around the the background of this one. Also, we get Joey Bishop as as one of the Jewish people aboard the plane. He didn't really stand out to me in the movie, but I mean, Joey Bishop, he was a member of the Rat Pack and stuff. Like uh, he's he's the member of the Rat Pack that no one cares about because he's not <laughs> Sammy Dean or Frank, but he he was there. <laughs> you know, he so he's a big deal, I guess, right? Yeah, sure. He's 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 around. He's around. He's near more famous people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so after the flight takes off, there, there's two terrorists aboard. There was supposed to be a third one, but he only had like a you know like a standing room only ticket, right? Or like a I I feel bad for he's like you know he's like the twentieth hijacker type guy who like just isn't able to make it on the plane with his buddies and like for supposedly being like they, they it seems like they have some kind of professionalism as like terrorists at least with sure. Robert Forster. So like for being a semi-professional group, he really makes up a, makes a scene in the airport and almost blows up their entire spot because that's like, true. Yeah, this this third guy isn't able to make it on the plane, and it's just like yelling and screaming about yeah, it in the are. airport. That's, that's true. I wasn't thinking of that, but yeah, and also for being as you said a semi-professional, you know, I think we can just say professional terror terrorist organization. Yeah. They couldn't get this dude an actual ticket. They got him like a. Uh, one of those tickets that only works if someone forgets to show up. They like yeah. couldn't this have been planned out a bit better? There's that, and then the, the other thing, if we're gonna uh, pick a couple nits, is all, all they had was a grenade and a couple of guns. Like <laughs> they they had one hand grenade, uh, a submachine gun, and a pistol, and that seemed mm-hmm. to be all they had to take down the plane. <laughs> I yeah, that's the thing is like there's a lot of moments in this. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, because there's only two of them, and they're armed, but it's like, couldn't a group of five people just swarm them? Yeah, Probably, well, but but who am I to, I sound like Mark Wahlberg now, though, who am I to say that if I were in this situation, I would have handled it differently, you know? That that That's fair, but then, like, at the same time, again, even though they are, like, professional in terms of, like, the connections they have and, and things like that, like... They are shockingly inept at certain points because, like, more than once, and there's just two of them, like you said, they're, they're just, like, conferring with each other in, like, such a way that they're not looking at the passengers Yes, yeah, I did all. notice that. Like, and that's just a... Looking. And that's just a filmmaking thing, right? Cause, yeah, you know, yeah. That's, but, but no, I, I definitely picked up on that as well. It's a new age of terror that requires a new breed of warrior. Oh! 
the Delta Force. After they take it over, they take this poor flight attendant, this uh, German woman, and they force her to open the cockpit door. There's a tense scene where when they open the cockpit door, it hits Robert Forster's hand, and he drops the pin from his grenade. So he goes in there and tells them, hey, we are going to Beirut. But they do sound off the flight hijacking equivalent of like a grocery store silent alarm. They like hit a switch and Pentagon is eventually alerted. And this, of course, is where the president, who we don't see the president in this movie, but he calls in the Delta Force. At this point, McCoy, Chuck Norris, not a member of the Delta Force because he's retired, but he does join up with them. So so they're at Fort Bragg. And I was so like, again, because I had seen this movie before, but I didn't really remember how it went. And I, I was like, okay, they're in North Carolina. This plane is going from Greece to Lebanon. Like, are they expecting to get there in time? Because, yeah, especially because they were, they're, they're waiting like, for McCoy they're literally, like, to show yeah, up, too. This is too. A, like a terrorist <laughs> hostage situation, and they're waiting around for, like, one guy to maybe show up. And he literally drives up. Yeah, and he drives up like right incredibly the unprofessional. Plane is, just in his like, uh, it looks like a Bronco. I don't know if it was a Bronco, but he just drives up in his SUV like right next to the plane and kind of just stiffly gets out and is like, "All right, let's go." And he gets promoted, by the way. Yes, that's that's not important. Major. Yeah, no, oh, he was a captain before. Yeah, Captain McCoy. Also uh, worth noting, one of the Delta Force members is. Steve James, who is more someone I know just by name. I mean, I, I knew who he was when I saw this movie, obviously, but like he's just in a ton of action movies from the 80s. He's he's usually not the lead, but he was just like in a lot of those movies. I know him from like The Exterminator because he's um he's Robert Ginty's buddy who gets beaten up and gets that whole story going in one of the greatest Death Wish knockoffs ever made. <laughs> So, okay, so the Delta Force is on their way to Beirut. So you mentioned the ring earlier that uh, Joy Behar took off that had a Hebrew inscription on it. Yes. The terrorists find that, and then they're like, oh, my God, there's Israelis on the plane, and they need to gather up all the—they keep saying the word Israelis, but really they mean Jews, and and they're going through the middleman here being the German flight attendant— and they're forcing her to gather up all of the passports so that they can find out who is Jewish. Collect all passports. Why? But um, obviously, there's no Israeli passports, but they read all these names, and they're okay. It's this guy's Jewish. This guy's Jewish. They only single out the men for some reason. Yeah, there there was another thing like that in the movie that I hadn't seen in another like plane hijacking movie before where like they make the passengers on the plane separate so that the women are on the aisle and the men are by the windows oh i kind of liked that detail because that yeah. makes sense to me if you're if you're more concerned about a man jumping you than a woman but then they they kind of ignore that at a certain point because those three there's three u.s navy divers and they're all in in the same row and yep. they never have them move no they just let them hang out where they are well they do have them move they eventually yeah. pull them up with the jews and start beating them up and stuff like that but yeah so the so the jews that they get it's uh joey bishop uh martin balsam who the 
uh, flight attendant notice has is like a has like a number branded on his wrist, which is uh, like a Holocaust thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think that's like four Jews, and then Father William O'Malley, George Kennedy, joins them out of solidarity. That's a neat scene. I liked that. I I liked. I kind of liked everything that they're doing on the plane with the rounding up the Jews. You know, not to sound like Kanye West, like this is something that I like <laughs> in real life, but there's there's that scene where they're they're telling the flight attendant to do that and she's like i can't do that don't you understand i'm german like do you know how awful this is and do you do you you terrorists do you want to be associated with nazis and it's like ooh, this is this is working for me in, in ways that other parts of the movie don't work for me i guess yeah it, it's weird because like i i did mostly like the stuff on the the plane even though like the tension doesn't really seem to like continually escalate it just is sort of in the same kind of holding pattern like there's no great dramatic act that happens while they're on the plane still it's kind of just like this processing of of stuff for a while but i still was definitely into the stuff that was happening on the plane one of the guys they um get isn't even jewish he's a He's a Russian Orthodox. He's a Russian guy who's living in Chicago who yeah. the like Chicago priest uh, and nuns on the flight thought was uh, Polish, I guess. I don't want to say nothing else happens on the plane, but those are really the big things. The plane eventually lands in Beirut. The I suppose we haven't said the name of the terrorist. Uh, Robert Forster plays Abdul Rafai who's commanding officer in the in the um new world revolution is the name to me that didn't sound like the terrorist group so much as like this is a metaphorical like we are the new like that's what it sounded like we are the new revolution so i don't i don't know if that's their official uh (laughs) their official name but i suppose they just kept saying new world revolution but then i'm like this just sounds like this is just making me think of Prince because it's Prince in the Revolution, and, and like, or the New Power Generation, or yes. the New Power Generation. It just seemed <laughs> like like somebody when they were coming up with the names for the movie, they were just like looking at a couple different Prince albums and were like, "Huh, there's something." Well, it's here. better. It's it's better than naming your um, naming your terrorist group after Adamant or something, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can come up with a lot less worse. intimidating names. The Cure would have been a good. That's a good insurrectionist terrorist kind of group named the cure yeah they're they're like the antidote to uh to the current like sickness to am- plaguing the world yeah to american imperialism or whatever yeah. but so the commanding officer says okay listen the world's eyes are on us you need to get in their good graces and release the women and um children and just take the men but before they do that what they do they take the Jews, the the Jewish men, including Father O'Malley in this case, and also the Russian Orthodox Christian guy, and they take them off the plane and take them to a prison camp. In Beirut, there is an undercover, he's like an Orthodox monk or priest or something, who is a spy for... Mossad, I suppose, because he communicates with Israel that they're that those people are here. Or no, no, I'm trying to think. No, because it's later on. It's a surprise that there are prisoners in Beirut. 
So he tells them where the plane is going because the plane is taking off from Beirut and it's headed to Algiers. Father Nicholas, he later on when the Delta Force guys show up and he's kind of giving them like the lay of the land, he's like very brazen and not very covert about like talking to them and like like hanging out with them and everything. Like it doesn't seem like he's the smoothest of 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 operators. <laughs> Well, that's why he gets killed later on, yes. right? I mean, yes. <laughs> okay, so hang on. Is so is the Delta Force do they first confront them when they're about to take off to Algiers or do they first confront them in Algiers? I can't remember. I'm I'm just looking at my notes now. Yeah, there's a lot of cutting to like their flight, like too much cutting to their flight. We see way too much of them flying over to undertake this mission that they could have just completely dropped from the movie. And then, yeah, they do make it to Algiers. Also in, in Beirut, a bunch more terrorists get aboard the plane, including the guy that was rejected at the uh, Athens airport. Yeah, he catches up. Where was the flight going to originally? It was Athens to... It's it's a very bizarre route because they're going from Cairo to New York City... But they're doing it through Athens and Rome, which that okay. seems like a lot of stops, even for a flight from Cairo to New York City to stop in Athens and Rome and then to get to New York City. Yeah, and Athens to Rome's got to be, what, like a 10-minute flight probably, yeah, right? Yeah, It's like a that, that was another Milwaukee thing to we, Minneapolis or something. That, yeah, exactly. That was another thing that was weird about them hijacking like that particular plane. It's like, this plane's not even going that far. This you got to make sure everything like goes perfectly with this. Otherwise, you're screwed. You're descending once you, the second yeah. you've ascended. So, yeah, that's that's true. I wasn't thinking about that, but I I was confused even as to where the plane was going. But So in Algiers, the Delta Force is ready to strike. They are in a bunch of different groups, including some in disguise. So all the women are let off, and Alexander... Lee Marvin finds the German flight attendant and talks to her, and this is when he first finds out about the prisoners in Beirut. Yep. But at this point, all the Delta Force has taken off their radio sets, and they're ready to attack, Um, but it doesn't go so well. They don't really end up attacking because they just kind of get shot at, and then the one U.S. Navy diver who wasn't taken to Beirut is then killed and thrown off the side of the plane as it's taking off yet again. When, when, the, when the hijackers kill him, one of them flashes a peace symbol, which like yeah. actually had me laughing hysterically on my couch because it's like <laughs> such a specific, bizarre writing choice or acting choice. I, I don't know whose choice it was, but it was just so crazy to have that juxtaposition. Was that like a dark comedy thing you know on, on on the terrorist part to be like oh you know there's just a, a, a couple of jokesters know. patrick well when one of your terrorists is in brown face i guess you know they gotta have a sense of humor i say one of it's possible more than one it's just robert forster i definitely know <laughs> yeah this this could be a scarface situation where like none of the people playing oh, the yeah. characters are actually like hispanic in the case of scarface but uh, that really bothers me about Scarface. It's weird that like so many people think that's like a classic movie, and it's like, yeah, but like, look at that. Like, I'm not saying it's as bad as John Wayne, 
playing Genghis Khan, but it's it's in the same ballpark, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, like the guy playing uh, Hector the Toad, his name is Al Israel. Well, and yeah, and, and this is, of course, where it's uh, worth pointing out. Menachem Golan is Israeli. Yes. I mean, he didn't write the movie. Well, no, he did. He co-wrote the movie. Never mind. (laughs) I I was going to say, I think this kind of paints his view a bit here of of the of these terrorists and stuff. And yeah, like because very critically, the crazier of the two initial terrorists is the one that expresses the motivation that part of the reason they're doing, or part of the reason for them being upset, is because of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's the crazy guy saying it, so in the context of the movie, it just seems like an insane thing for him to say. And it's like, oh, that shouldn't be taken seriously at all, that that complaint that this wild-eyed man made. It's also, like, barely brought up. Like, that's another thing. I feel like I don't have a great sense of what the terrorists are trying to do. No. Right? And you can you can do this a few ways. You can, you can do, like, a Die Hard, where Die Hard initially, he's you know, saying that he wants the release of all these different prisoners. And then in all, and then there's the twist is in actuality, he's really just trying to steal money. He has no political affiliations. They could have done something like that. And I think that would have been a welcome twist in this movie. But when when they're beating up on the, the Navy diver, I think they, they call him like imperialist pig or something, but that's like the only time they complain about American imperialism, the entire thing. And it's like, yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know. I mean, it, it is just a movie, but like, I would have liked to understand what these guys are trying to accomplish a bit more. Yeah. It really just kind of seems like they're, they're trying to hijack a plane and take it to Beirut. And I mean, we really established that the kidnapping and imprisoning all of the jews that is an afterthought that is not part of the plan going in that is they only talk about that once they find that ring so i don't really know what their what their overall goal was their their anti-semitism just got in the way of a good plan yeah that's that's what happened that's what i mean really when 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 i'm talking about kind of the israeli perspective i think kind of painting these uh, kind of informing these terrorist characters i'd say more than in other aspects but then again that was also like my favorite part of the movie so so i don't know what i'm complaining about here Mm -hmm. so this delta force mission has failed once again um because the plane from algiers takes off which yeah which i want to say they keep using the same pilots the same atw pilots is that how you would do it if you were hijacking a plane and taking it to multiple stops wouldn't at some point you just have like your own pilots or wouldn't the the hijackers also be able to fly i i don't know it's it's just well because like what do i know about this stuff because because robert forrester seems to have some understanding of like pilot procedure anyway because he notices when things are amiss yeah it does seem like after a while you could maybe just dump the pilots yeah, I was, like, surprised that they're still there, like, because you don't see them for a while, and it's, like, at the end of the movie, when when they're getting everyone out of there, they get on uh, aboard the plane, and they're, like, uh, we're taking off now, and it's, like, it's still Bo Svensson and all those guys there, and he's, like, oh, it's about time, and I'm, like, what? They're still here? <laughs> I thought they were in Beirut or something. I don't know. Well, I guess that is Beirut later, but we'll get to it. So the Delta Force later on 
we talked a little bit about the the Iran hostage crisis at the outset, of course. I didn't realize there was like a failed military operation before that. I've, of course, seen the movie Argo. So, you know, I know about this, what actually worked to get those people out of there. Um, it almost seems like these filmmakers knew because um, Chuck Norris and his friend Peterson arrive in Beirut pretending to be Canadian and that's yes. how they get in there to to um in this case not really do anything because this is kind of an o for three at this point they witness the death of the the Greek Orthodox priest and then they get in that car chase scene where we get the 15th iteration of the uh, Delta Force theme by Alan Silvestri uh it's a pretty fun scene you know any kind of you know chase through uh, for lack of a better term I'll say old-fashioned streets you know like an old city like beirut you know we got some car explosions we got shooting we got car crashes like i i i enjoyed that scene see i i i don't know for some reason once the once the movie got done with the the plane you know like really the movie's bifurcated almost like perfectly in half because like the first it's like a two hour and ten minute movie the first like Mm -hmm. hour and five minutes is basically almost all the plane stuff and then it switches to Beirut and the rescue mission and all that. And that chase, like, there, the thing that bugged me, I guess, was there was no real variance to it. Like, it's just sure. a, a Delta Force, like, underling guy kind of weaving through these alleyways in this van as Chuck right. Norris just, yeah. as, like, Chuck Norris just hangs out of the car and shoots. And, like, he's yeah. not even getting off any good, like, bants or anything like that. He's just, like... Well, well, that's the thing. Chuck Norris can't deliver one-liners, okay? I, I learned no. this from watching Invasion USA. All right, of the great 80s action stars and their one-liners, Arnold, you know, the king. A League of his comes own, to, yeah. Um, yeah. Commando, especially, I think. Stallone, I think, had a few good ones in, like, Cobra, maybe. I'm, I'm not really sure, but... You know, there are certain actors you shouldn't even try with that because they're they just don't have that charisma. And yeah. I think Chuck Norris is a perfect example of that. I'll say Charles Bronson as well. Oh, to God, me, it's yes. it's almost funnier. It's it's funnier to me that he just doesn't that he doesn't have one liners because he's just so he's so old and he's just going around killing these people. He that having been said, of course, Charles Bronson does have one of the greatest one liners in film history in Death Wish too, when he says. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. So, not only does Chuck Norris, like, deliver a lot of these lines with, like, no charisma whatsoever. Like, even the way he moves just feels so stiff. And, like... He's a guy that's a black belt in, like, three martial arts disciplines. Yes. But in the movie, he moves, like, so stiffly. This is the um, great irony of Chuck Norris's film career. He is an accomplished martial artist. He could have been the American Bruce Lee. He he could have been essentially what Jean-Claude Van Damme ended up making his career on. I know Jean-Claude Van Damme is an American, but you know, you know what I mean? He's an He was movie. he was in um, a Bruce Lee movie even. Yes, he was. He gets yeah. his chest hair ripped off in the Coliseum, of course, famously, but he could have been that and then for some reason, I don't know if it was his decision or the filmmakers or or if this was just I mean, Canon made ninja movies. They made martial arts movies. They could have thrown thrown him in those, but He's just in these gun movies, and that's yeah. just not. A, I don't, th- 
I don't think it takes that much as an actor to just fire a gun. But but so the guys you usually put in those movies, you know, they're like big and strong, you know, your Rambos and your um your uh Matrix, not the Keanu Reeves movie, but the John Matrix and Commando. Like they're they're just like big, tough and in the in the case of Arnold and Stallone, they're also charismatic actors. And Chuck Norris is just like the diet version of that. And it's just kind of unfortunate. I feel like they're I mean, I don't think Chuck Norris is, is a talented actor, obviously, but I think there there was a way where you could have capitalized on his talents better in film than they ever really did. And, and and to your point about them misusing him, there was a quote that I found from uh, Golan where he said, we look at Chuck as having the potential of a Clint Eastwood. And yes, I saw that quote. And, and it's like, Clint Eastwood, Eastwood is talent, though. Clint Eastwood <laughs> I mean, is a, a once-in-a-generational figure, both as an actor and as a director. Like, Well, yeah, and then I'm sure Glenn wasn't even talking directing, but but yeah, Eastwood is talented is the, is the difference. You know, a Chuck Norris, Dirty Harry, first of all, Chuck Norris couldn't have delivered, I mean, Dirty Harry is classic one-liners. They're not one-liners in the, like, commando sense where they're, like, comedy lines. But, yeah. you know, go ahead, make my day, and do you feel lucky, like, that stuff. Imagine Chuck Norris delivering those lines. It would have been awful. Yeah. But, yeah, so Chuck Norris kind of sucks, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and so, you, so you mentioned, obviously, the movie is bifurcated. You, you have the first half, which is thriller. High concept, on a plane, tense dramatic thriller second half is kind of just schlocky action yeah for what it is the action isn't bad it's not great you you mentioned kind of the lack of uh i guess personality with chuck norris <laughs> which i think is a detriment but i will say like i was dissing the chase through the alleyways and stuff in the the van but there was at least one cool moment during the the final big raid scene where like a motorcycle goes flying over a soldier who's on fire and like my lizard brain completely dug that. Okay. I suppose we might as well skip ahead to the final raid because basically the previous raid which was only two people failed. This raid now is everybody. It starts out with just Chuck Norris, but then he sees the other guys coming on their navy like a uh, marine landing equipment or whatever Mm -hmm. and so there's a raid on this prison chuck norris and steve james rescue all the prisoners steve james takes them and um chuck norris overhears on the radio i mean he he pieces it together because he doesn't know arabic obviously i'm not even 100 percent sure he knows english (laughs) but he he thinks that the reinforcements are coming and of course we have the subtitles we know that's true but if, if this is the closest thing he gets to a one-liner, I think he like when he kills the uh, radio operator. What is he? He says something. He says, "Doesn't he?" He says, "He." I. This is how bad a one-liner was because I don't even. Yeah, remember. it is. Like, but like it was an attempt at it. I, I thought it was something about yeah. backup or something like that. But I might be completely misremembering what the one-liner he says, even he was. He says something here. You know, I. American, I want to negotiate. Do you hear me, American? Loud and clear. I don't even remember what it is, but I'm sure on the spot I could come up with something better. I'd be like, 
your call cannot be completed as dialed or yeah. something like that. I don't know. Just uh, give us something, movie. But he picks up a bazooka at one point and shoots it. And then he does this cool thing where he slides down a uh, clothesline cord. I don't know what yep. that is, What? why that's there. It's there so he can slide down it, but... <laughs> He he meets back up with Lee Marvin, and at some point, and I kind of missed how this happened, but the prisoners get recaptured along with Steve James, and then Chuck Norris picks up a motorcycle. And as you alluded to earlier, this is a magic motorcycle. You know, it's it's, it's funny. If, if this... You could have made an action movie just surrounding this motorcycle. I, I would like, like to see... Had this be like some kind of sci-fi device kind of thing? I, I would like I mean, to see... There have been movies like that. I, I was about to say, I, I would like to see the motorcycle from this movie do battle with the motorcycle from Nightmare Beach, the uh, the Italian oh. uh, slasher Yeah, movie. I love that one. Yeah, th- which is like a, a motorcycle that has an electric chair uh, attached with it, if I remember correctly. So the sounds the, right. The the rocket farting motorcycle could fight the uh, the electric chair motorcycle. Oh yeah, I I was thinking um, Charles Band's murder cycle, which in addition to being one of the greatest titles ever made, is a okay movie as far as Charles Band movies go. But yeah, yeah, there, you could have had an entire movie around this because there are movies that exist around motorcycles. You know, I mean, there was a freaking television series, you know, Knight Rider, around the same time. It was a car. Yep. But it was like this sci-fi car, right? The car could talk. I never saw it, but you know what I'm talking about, right? There's mm-hmm. like some, Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if it had rockets or anything, but but he's got a James Bond motorcycle. He picks it up from the Beirut prison, right? Is this in possession of the terrorists? Where did this come from? Yeah, what I, is I, this? What? I don't understand who had this initially. And, like, if it was, like, stashed away specifically yeah. for, for McCoy to find or or how he, like, comes about it. it because it, Do you think the Greek priest hit it? It, it could be, yeah. Like, maybe, <laughs> and maybe that's why it's so magical. It's, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it, well, it's magical. I was just because it's Mossad technology. But, yeah, um, it's been blessed with... Um, like Greek mystical uh, traditions or something. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know, it, so we already had our final raid. Well, guess what? That's not quite our climax because we have our climax. Really, is when there's a parade of terrorists, including the truck carrying all the captives, which at this point also includes Steve James, and they stop. In the middle of the road because Chuck Norris is staring him down on his motorcycle. Yep. Robert Forster looks looks and is like, you guys are stopping for one dude on a motorcycle. And then, boom, he launches a rocket. And it's, you know, it's fun in a schlocky way. Yep. Uh, then we get this big, big action scene. The filmmakers are hoping you haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark because the scene where Chuck Norris and Steve James fight to take control of that truck is not nearly as good as the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, no, no. But uh, the car is also visibly going about 15 miles an hour when all that <laughs> stuff is going down, too. Which, you know, it's it's not going that fast in Raiders, either, but they film around it. They speed. I think they speed it up at times. They film it cleverly to really make yeah. it look like it's going fast. So, so we have this big action scene. Everybody gets out. Robert Forster gets back to, is it his house or someone else's house? But he's, like, hiding out yeah. there. 
Uh, and then he sees Chuck Norris outside, and Chuck Norris eventually rides the motorcycle through the window, which is pretty fun, and they fight. Very briefly, though, the fight is over very fast, and, like, somehow Robert Forster's able to just run out of the house. Yeah, and then well, and then they fight a little bit more at the car, because Robert Forster's trying to get into his car. Chuck Norris, like, breaks his arm on the, uh, on the, on the driver's side door. Yep. And then he gets back to his motorcycle, and he blows him up again, which... It was established that this motorcycle has four places that it shoots rockets from. I don't think he ever reloads, and I don't think those <laughs> things would have reserve rockets, and I think this is at least the sixth or seventh <laughs> rocket he's fired, but but what do it's, I know? It's it's a bit like, you know, because even, like, even in some of the, the much better and like supposedly more realistic action movies, there are plenty of things like that. Supposedly. Where, where supposedly like, more realistic. Where, like, people aren't reloading whatsoever. So yeah, I'll, I'll I know, give him a I pass know. on that. But, like, the thing I was struck by is, like, Robert Forrester's character really seems like someone they should have tried to bring in instead of kill because he's a terrorist. Yes, I was thinking that. Because, like, he's yeah. a terrorist that has enough clout to, like, get an audience with the Ayatollah of Iran. And instead, they just waste him in a car. <laughs> Listen. Listen, Chuck Norris, he just wants blood. He's just going to... Yeah, 100%, they should not be trying to kill this guy. If they can capture him, which Chuck Norris can, because he's broken his arm and he's not going to get away, he should capture him. He, he shouldn't kill the dude. Yeah. But this is where the cannon kicks in. This is not... Uh, intelligent, you no. know, Argo's based on a true story, but it's so maybe not even compared to Argo, but compared to like other fictional spy movies. This isn't Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy here. This isn't John Le Carre. This is Menachem <laughs> Anyways, so while Chuck Norris is going on his murder rampage, the other Delta Force members and the prisoners are trying to get back onto the plane where apparently again as i mentioned the pilots apparently are still there so they kill a bunch of people they get back aboard and they're getting ready to take off but they need a clear runway and the terrorists are sending more trucks out there to block the runway and to shoot the plane and this is where chuck norris emerges once again on the magical motorcycle this time i don't think he utilizes the explosion the the rocket aspect of it maybe this time he truly was out of ammo but he shoots some people he gets back <laughs> they, they do an overly dramatic thing of him getting from the motorcycle onto the plane obviously while they're both moving because he's steve james is holding onto a rope he has the rope like in his hand while he's just sitting on the motorcycle and he kind of loses it and then he falls behind and as he speeds up then he has to stand on the motorcycle it's like no you didn't you could have just grabbed the rope from a seating position seated position and and got pulled up i think that would have been would a lot easier and <laughs> made yeah. a lot more sense but. Yep. so the plane at any rate takes off they arrive in israel they're greeted with a hero's welcome with all the wives of you know the captives you know the, everybody's cheering there's a band playing but the delta force isn't about that celebration they no. just immediately get back onto their plane and just go off to invade Panama or something like that. You know, they're they're just done with this stuff. And, and it, it's old hat for them. Yeah. And, yeah. and it should be mentioned that um, once, the, you know, it's all hunky-dory and they're back on the, the airplane. 
The passengers are drinking Budweiser and singing America the Beautiful. That's right. Like, I forgot to mention. That. Oh, and, and and of course, uh, Chuck Norris's friend, the guy he saves from the helicopter, dies on this plane. He got shot in... I don't remember if it was the raid or when they took down the trucks, but he got shot and he officially dies on the planes. So yes, that. I'm sorry to interrupt. But. Yeah, yeah, and and so the, the he dies and but then you know they're singing America the Beautiful and they're drinking buds and like it just seemed like something that would have been rejected as too like cliche for a beer commercial ad. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, well, it's also like um, you know this is really I th- I think. I don't know for certain, but from the action movies I've seen from canon, they seem to be just, like, really... I don't want to say celebrating America, but just kind of, like... They're, I'll just say proud to be American. And and so someone might hear that and say, oh, these are conservative movies. And listen, this movie kind of is, geopolitically speaking. But, but I, I don't really mean it in that. I think it's something like... I think maybe... Golan and uh, Globus, maybe they were just like so happy to be American immigrants or some, something that they're mm-hmm. just their films are just very celebratory. And yeah. I think there's there's a charm to that where, you know, again, excusing all of the the geopolitical ramifications and, you know, the imperialist messaging, you might say, is in this movie. I think there's there seems to be almost like an innocence about it. Like there's it's like. Maybe it's just a naivete. I I don't know, but there's just I I find that a little charming to be honest. I I I'm not going to say I teared up when they were singing "America the Beautiful," but I kind of enjoyed it. I I don't know. I don't know what it was. And and that is fair to, to mention. I think in some respects too, because like as we were even talking about earlier, like the like political motivations of the terrorists also seemed like very confused. So there does not seem to be a clear message that this is really trying to impart if you went looking for one. yeah. Other than, I guess, just, like, displays of force by the military but that's that's about it like the one well, and and i think i think them getting just immediately on the plane they're, they're not interested in the in the hero's welcome kind of thing it yeah. is more of that messaging for lack of a better word that is just like yeah these guys are just out here they're just doing their job they don't care who thanks them again i should mention this movie is two hours and ten minutes long and i'm not usually a guy that complains about runtime but Man, they they could have trimmed some fat somewhere in this one. Yeah, so so I guess obviously we're at the end of the movie here, so we're going to be talking about what we overall think of it. But I, I'm going to say, like, even though I enjoyed that car chase scene, they really didn't need the multiple attacks on the prison in Beirut. The first one's not really an attack so much as like a an undercover, like we're going to get information, then the priest is killed, and it becomes a, an action scene, a car chase. But I think they could have gotten rid of that and and really just had the go from Algiers to everybody is attacking the prison, including Lee Marvin and yeah. Steve James and all these guys. They they really didn't need all of that. There's the cutaways when when the Delta Force is is just getting there. They're getting there, and I understand. Listen, it's a long flight from Fort Bragg to Beirut or to Algiers, wherever the hell they're going. But we don't need to see all that. And, I mean, those cutaways don't – it's not 20 minutes or anything, but we didn't need all that. And I think there's that 
scene that I actually thought was genuinely weird where after the Delta Force has failed for the second time, they show them like training where they're like boarding a plane and shooting people or shooting like dummies or whatever, you know, these cardboard cutout like target things. And again, it's a really brief scene. But do we even need to see them training? I actually don't think they should have shown that because that makes it seem like they're just wasting their time. I feel like immediately after Algiers, they should be on their way to Beirut. They shouldn't have to stop to train. And then also the logistics of it. Do they expect to be attacking those people on the plane again? They're not. They, the plane's done. The, 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 everybody's at the at the Beirut prison. Nobody's on the plane anymore. We don't need to. The plane is is irrelevant. No, yeah, until the, the, until they get back on it and, the, and take off. But the plane becomes a total afterthought. Right. I mean, yeah. So, anyways, Jared, what did you think of the Delta Force? I shudder to think what the the two sequels, um, one of which was directed by Chuck Norris's brother. Um, oh and the, God! And the third one uh, stars Chuck Norris's son. So just a lot oh, of no. rank nepotism. Um, yeah, I, I shudder to think how much more like turgid and uninspiring those could be. Because like this one, for for being a, a ripoff of like other action movies, and from being uh, from a company with like a certain reputation, was just not a lot of fun. Which is what like was kind of confusing to me. Like, mm-hmm. because Chuck Norris is just, like, so serious and, and so stiff. And since he's the mm-hmm. center and everything is orbiting around him, like, it just makes everything feel so flat. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I'll be perfectly honest. I did, I'm not surprised to learn, but I did not know there were sequels to this movie. For those of you listening, don't worry. The sequels are not on our list. We will not be covering them. But I certainly don't want to after hearing that little blurb. But, yeah, I think Chuck Norris holds this movie back. An actor with more personality would have obviously helped. Uh, in my experience watching canon movies, canon action movies, the Chuck Norris ones are the most dull. The Death Wish movies and, you know, all the Charles Bronson movies, I like those movies. Mm-hmm. I tend to like them. I find them a lot more fun than this. I think Chuck Norris is boring. He's not a great action star, ironically, because I think he's... To someone that doesn't know better, who might think he's like in that top tier of action stars, and he's—I mean—he's nowhere near Arnold or Stallone or Eastwood or Connery or whoever. And I—I I wonder. Reeves. I wonder if a differentiating thing too is that unlike those guys, like he—he he thinks he actually is some of these characters he's playing because I—I I was reading a quote of his. Or he was talking about, like, Rambo and how part of Rambo was unrealistic. And he's talking about it as if he is a guy that, like, fought in, like, Vietnam himself. And it's like, you're just an actor, man. Like, (laughs) you you know that, right? You know you're not, like, this guy (laughs) that you're playing in these movies. See, see, I don't know much about Chuck Norris's personal life or anything i for all i know he could have been a vietnam veteran i i really didn't know he he was but... in the uh, he was like he was in the air force as like an air policeman but okay. that was in like the the 50s he didn't he didn't see any combat or anything like that chuck norris lack of personality i think um even steve james i think if he had he been the lead i would have enjoyed that more but uh, the movie is too long i think 
and and it has those two distinct halves. And I'm going to say I enjoyed the first half a good deal. Same, same. I liked the stuff on the plane. I'm not saying it's because there was if it's because Chuck Norris was barely involved in the first half, but that it is worth noting. And then, you know, the second half, I I really didn't. I I enjoyed the action in in bursts, but you really it was like. It was on a different level. Like the first half has you thinking like this could be a genuinely like good action thriller, like a a poor man's diehard. And then the second half is just kind of schlocky action and you know rocket launchers launched from uh from motorcycles. Like it's fun on in on the, like the dumbest level possible. But the first movie had you thinking this movie could have more to it than just that. So I, I would say that the title and kind of the movie's reputation just being a Chuck Norris military action movie, I would say I was expecting the entire movie basically to be the second half. And I was very pleasantly surprised that the first half was nothing like that, but then the second half was kind of like, oh, this is what I thought the movie was going to be. So overall, I'm going to say, like, it's it's okay. I, I didn't... It's all right. There's... Plenty of things wrong with it. Overall, I did somewhat enjoy it. I, I thought it. I thought it's a passable, a passable action movie. It's not up there with the classics, but you know, you could do far worse. Is kind of how I, how I'm coming away. I th- I think that's that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the other uh, part of this uh, double feature, I guess, is a movie called uh, Young Rebels, which is. Uh, Directed by a gentleman named uh, Amir Shervan, who was Iranian, and... He would have been more appropriate playing the Robert Forster part than Robert Forster, just... Mu- much, eth- much more ethnically. so. <laughs> much, much more so, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he was an Iranian gentleman who relocated to, to Hollywood in, in 1980, after the, uh, the revolution in 79... Uh, and he basically spent like seven years building up a film company, and then he ripped off like five movies in as many years from 1987 to 1991 when he made his last movie, uh, which is called Samurai Cop. And Samurai Cop is, of course, a legendary film if you're into good, bad movies. I think it's like... It's interesting because because like the B movie canon, I think, has like changed a lot mm-hmm. over the past few years. I feel like with the internet, just the way people communicate, the way people talk about movies is is so different now. But like for years, it was like Plan Nine is yeah. like the great Manos the, the Hands then, of know, Fate, Manos the Hands of Fate, like anything that might have been on Mystery Science Theater, or and then like uh, the Wasp Woman. To mm-hmm. me, is a classic, terrible B movie. But now it's a, then. I think the room was kind of its own wave. Yep. And if you ask me, the room is is dead. It's we've gotten so we we had a film about the making of, and it's like I'm just done with the room, hundred percent. Samurai Cop and some other movies are to me have kind of like emerged as the go to B movies. You know, I still love Plan Nine. Yep. And if I'm going to sit down and watch the room, I'll still enjoy it. But I just like, I, I there's there's such a vast library out there. You know, Raw Force, all these weird uh, Slumber Party Massacre Two. Like I, I, I just uh, Sleepaway Camp is is one of the best. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 Samurai Cop is right up there 
and you have not seen Samurai Cop, you told me. And uh, I will say, you know, I've seen, I think, four movies by Amir Sherevan now. Uh, we covered Killing American Style on this podcast a long time ago with my friend Sean, who is a fan of Samurai Cop and of Amir Sherevan. And I've seen Hollywood Cop. I, I Gypsy, I think, is the one American movie I've never seen. But I'll say this is probably the most competent one, which makes it the least entertaining one. The, he got more on, incompetent as he went along, because I think he kept, the budgets kept getting smaller, and, you know, Samurai Cop was, had all these reshoots and everything, and, you know, the main character's wearing a wig for half the movie. Um, so Samurai Cop, just a lot of great stuff. There's still some good stuff here, but just, it's not quite the same feel, I guess, unfortunately. But you said he ripped off five movies, and I thought for a second... I was going to correct you and say, no, he ripped off one movie. He ripped off Lethal Weapon. But, oh, he ripped off as in he made five yeah, movies. But I, no, I see what you mean. That, uh, no, that was in my notes, though, is that uh, like all, all of these movies, again, I've only seen this one, but I read up on the other ones. And, like, all of his... They're American, all essentially the same thing. Yeah, all, all of his American output basically just borrows from or rips off Lethal Weapon. But, like, if someone made Lethal Weapon and didn't know how to edit or write dialogue. Right. And they also or didn't have... Or do ADR. Yeah. And they didn't have a budget, and they also used the same locations in multiple movies and within the and same, same actors. Yeah. The same actors a lot of times. Like, I, I think the lead is different in every movie, but Robert Zadar is in at least three of the Amir Sherevan movies I've seen. I don't remember if he's in Hollywood Cop. Joselito Escobar, I think is his name, is he's a producer on this movie, which was, came as a surprise to me. Apparently, he also was a producer on Killing American Style, but he is famously the gay waiter in Samurai Cop, which is one of the more memorable scenes from that movie. Her mother owns the place. Where's her father? Bang! Killed? Who shot him? He! Who? Him! Who's him? Himself! Oh, he committed suicide. Yes! <laughs> and he is uh, a doctor in Killing American Style. He is one of his one of the main guy's buddies in this movie, one of the Hispanic guys. Uh, he doesn't really leave too much of an impression in this movie, but it's nice to see him. It's nice to see those Amir Shervan regulars. You can also really see, uh, you know, you mentioned he just had less money as the, the movies he made went along. You can definitely see the budget or, or lack thereof with like the lighting situation because everything mm -hmm. is shot during the daytime and so it just gets really old after a while because there's never any variance it's all just daytime and as much of it is outdoors as possible or inside but with every room light like turned on oh well you say there's no variance in the lighting i'm, I'm gonna disagree politely because <laughs> i thought the scene where he confronts the striking mexican and filipino laborers when they switched from day to night really quick. I, I there, was, there was some wonderful variants in that scene where where I think it was after they accidentally kill the one guy who's on strike and then they cut back to the shot of all the workers and it's like, it's dark behind them and then they <laughs> cut back to the gangsters and it's day and it's like, oh my God, there's, there's little magical moments like that. There's not too many of them. So yeah, we should just go ahead and get into it then because almost right away there was wild stuff like that. And mm -hmm. like, so 80s synth music again kicks in in this, and I liked this music a lot more than the music in the Delta Force, I, I gotta say. I did too, and I, I, I was paying attention to the credits. They, they, credited, a, they credited someone with the score. I, I, I would have to go back and see them, 
I'm pretty sure all Amir Sherevan movies have the same score because there were definitely pieces of music in this that I recognize. Mm. But it's overall, it's cheap, low-budget, 80s synth. Yep, which I'm a sucker sort for. Of Beverly Hills Cop mixed with like an 8-bit video game or mm. something because it sounds cheaper than Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, so like almost right away that, that music gets going and we get the credits. I, I thought this was funny. One of the credits is for um, Carlos Rivas, who was in uh, True Grit in one of the small, smaller parts. And he's also in one of the later Hitchcock movies, Topaz. Um, oh, I've never but, seen that one. But what's funny is like it says special appearance, Carlos Rivas. <laughs> and it's like when when your special appearance uh, actor credit is a guy that yeah. almost no one has ever heard of. That that doesn't speak well for the the cast that you're dealing with. No, it doesn't. But like you know, the the weird thing is that Amir Shervan, despite his lack of professionalism in so many aspects of filmmaking, he still got real actors. Yeah, here and there, not not for every part. The leads are like nobodies all the time. But Aldo <laughs> Ray is the sheriff here. Who that's a name I know. He's in some like. He's in a ton of movies. Like, I, I don't really know much about him, but, like, yeah, yeah I've heard of that guy. Um, you know, Robert Zadar is, like, a cult action star. But I'm thinking, like, uh, Killing American Style, believe it or not, Jim Brown, NFL Hall of Famer, yep. unfortunately, uh, is in that movie. Conrad Brooks is in this one. That's another name that means something to me. Oh, he's just in a bunch of ed wood movies okay so that never mind so he's not okay no ed, okay so conrad brooks is is definitely in this guy's uh, wheelhouse but <laughs> yeah so i i don't know maybe it's just aldo ray in this one but the jim brown i still can't get over jim brown <laughs> so so yeah so like so that's your that's your special appearance credit and then like the the movie opens at a marina of some kind where robert zadar is in what looked like a ponytail at first and then like a flannel looking shirt that's not buttoned up at all and a white suit jacket. Um, <laughs> he's he's standing next to some bald guy and he asks, uh, are you going to give him the money? And then the bald guy responds in like clearly like dubbed over voice. Yes. That makes the Godzilla dubs like seem incredibly polished yeah. by, by comparison it's just like so shoddy the way that like this is classic share fan yeah also also you mentioned the special appearance this is the real special appearance at least for me as a fan of silent night deadly night 2 eric freeman is one of the drug dealers here he might get shot he might not i think he disappears from the scene he's very clearly they're showing there's robert zadar's group there i guess we'll just call them gangsters there's shots of them and then there's shots of the other guys with guns there's rarely if ever shots connecting the groups eric freeman is clearly not there when robert zadar is there but eric freeman the star of silent night deadly night part two where he delivers one of the greatest <laughs> bad performances in, of all time garbage day that's that's that should be the special appearance in the credits is my point yeah so like what was weird is you know like 
Robert Zatar was in a lot of movies. You know, he's in the Maniac Cop uh, movies and was... Yeah, that was probably his his biggest brush with, like, mainstream. The mainstream, I would say, is the Maniac Cop movies, right? And, yeah, he was in those, and he was actually even a Chippendales dancer at one point, apparently. Which Um, is really hard to believe. Maybe if you put a bag over his head? (laughs) Um, But what's weird, though, is that, like... You know, he's been in a bunch of movies, but, like, the first part of this movie, for some reason, he's doing, like, a Steven Seagal, like, tough guy voice that, like, they clearly <laughs> later is not his voice because, like, he, like, sounds different later on in the movie. So I, I don't know what was going on with that, but he's doing, like, a Steven Seagal voice, and then this drug deal that him and the bald guy are doing, it, it erupts into a shootout. Where, like, all the guys who are shooting are, like, grimacing as they're, they're shooting, but not in, like, a cool way, but in, like, a just, like, it hurts them to shoot their guns kind of way. <laughs> uh, and we get more awful dubbing when they're shooting. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Um, and, and then, yeah. like, you know, they, they shoot some more, and then Robert Zadar and, and the bald guy... They eventually get all, get away on like what's not even a speedboat. The the drug deal goes completely wrong. Don't you see like a rental sign on it? Maybe I'm thinking of a different immersion friend movie, but I'm, I thought that was that. <laughs> it, it's it's entirely possible. Um, they they <laughs> they take whatever this flotation device is, um, and they go back to this like terrible wood paneled office where Robert Zadar who I guess is a very adult son. He has to apologize to his dad, who's played by Carlos Rivas. He apologizes him to him for losing $2 million. Oh, this is, this is Carlos Rivas. Okay, because yeah. this guy is the worst actor in the movie somehow. <laughs> he's, he's the one who was in actual movies? Yeah, it was Carlos <laughs> Rivas, yeah. Which might have been a case of, like, you know, great actors, like we were talking about with Delta Force, can transcend the material... But, like, just okay actors can definitely really flounder. And, like, that might have been what happened with Carlos Rivas with this material. Well, well, and also, and also, and not saying Carlos Rivas is a great actor. I don't really know much about him. But I will say, like, great actors can also recognize when they are in a shit movie and just throw in the towel and just go crazy. I'm not saying that's what he's doing here, but, I mean, it could be. Yeah. But, but yeah, so Rivas is definitely not one of those kind of guys. Um, and, 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 and so, like, and so like he finds out that his, his idiot son, who's, like, 35, uh, has just lost all this money. But instead of immediately doing something about that, he drives to a farm and is told by some supplicant that the Mexican and Filipino workers are going on strike and demanding yeah. minimum wage. They, out, they, out of nowhere. They, they don't say, like, what their connection is to Rivas. Uh, they paused the plot to go do this. Yeah. And so, like, the dad then works up, walks up to, the like, the strikers, and he says, all of you Mexicans are fired. I'm keeping the Filipinos. <laughs> and, and then there's a fight where someone, and I, I even rewound it. I was watching this on Tubi. By the way, yeah, Tubi, yeah. This, is, yeah. this is not a plug for Tubi, but... They have such an incredible collection that I'm always blown away by. 
Um, of especially Tubi is at least in my eyes is best for these kinds of yes. movies. These like really weird B movies that maybe you've otherwise would have never heard of, but might yes. be worth watching. Like uh, I don't know for a fact, but Silent Night Deadly Night Part Two might be on Tubi. That's that's the type of movie that that's usually on there. So uh, great resource for those kinds of movies. So, so yeah, with this like meetup with the striking workers, there's a fight. Where someone, and again, I re I rewound it. There's a fight where someone is punched and pistol whipped, and that somehow kills them. Like they they die. There's from also that. no sound. There's no, no sound when the pistol whipping happens. There's no. sound when the punching happens. Yeah, and and like, but then what's weird is I thought maybe the guy got shot, but like I said, I rewound it, and he's yeah. just punched and pistol whipped, and that kills him and bloodies him somehow. And, and then the, the dad's goons, Mr. Vincenzo is his name, Mr. Vincenzo's goons just yeah. indiscriminately murder the other workers. They just gun him down. <laughs> and then Joey, Robert Zadar, he, he shows up to where his dad has just overseen a massacre of workers. And he comes with the bald guy and these sheriff's deputies. And apparently the sheriff is, like, sick in bed. And, and Mr. Vincenzo promises... That, like, he's going to promote one of the underlings to sheriff because I guess he's yeah. that big of a mover and shaker. And and then he he tells the deputy. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so this deputy is, is like, on his pay. It's, it's yeah, a, he's, on the, a guy, he's on the corrupt tape. cop on the payroll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then uh, Mr. Vincenzo, Carlos Rivas, he tells the deputies that have shown up with uh, his idiot son that the Mexicans and the Filipinos just killed each other. Because they don't like each other. Yeah. And then the deputies... They've been just, fighting for years or something. Yeah, and, 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 uh, tale as old as time. Um, yeah. and, and then with no emotion... It's like Romeo de- and Juliet. And then with no emotion, the deputy just says, we'll see what we can do. All right. We, we, I got to stop you. Uh, this is my favorite scene in the movie for a number of reasons. One, one of Mr. Vincenzo's goons looks just like George Michael. Yes, uh, a um, thousand percent. Yes, <laughs> with the thousand. slick back hair and the sunglasses, he looks like specifically like in like like George Michael faith. with like yeah, faith. Yes. This is I mentioned earlier the the day to night really quick, which uh, is I think the only night shot of the movie, and inexplicably it's set during the day. And then also, I, I got to mention you, you keep referring to Robert Zadar as the thirty five year old son, and I mean I don't disagree. But I think in Amir Shervan's eyes, Robert Zadar passes as young 20-something because in Killing American Style, his mother in that movie is younger than him. Just Amir Shervan, either he just, Robert Zadar wasn't the first choice for the role or, you know, he thinks Robert Zadar passes as young, you know, when he barely passes as human, but whatever, you know. This scene is wonderful. This, to me... The sound, the lack of sound on the pistol whip. You're right, he could have shot him because there wasn't a sound for a gunshot or for a pistol whip. He could have easily shot him and that's how he died. But yeah, I loved the scene. And and so so that like that unfolds. We we have this massacre of what, probably a dozen workers. And then we immediately cut to just an ass shaking at a strip oh, yeah. club. And oh yeah. And and this routine goes on for a long time it goes on for two minutes before the the stripper walks off stage and two dudes like high five each other as if they've never seen a strip like routine of any kind before they they high five each other and like 
this movie is is ninety three minutes, and so this 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 strip uh, routine goes on for several minutes. It's four percent of the movie is just a strip club dance routine by two different women, and all this serves to let us know is that one of the guys, Keith, who I later found out is actually Ben and not Keith because it was very confusing with the names. Uh, that this guy is getting married, and then he owes Mr. Vincenzo money. And so yeah. he, he gets roughed up by Vincenzo's goons. But his boys, like, follow him out, and they start a kung fu fight in the parking lot of the strip club. And they they almost save Ben, but then, like, a Vincenzo goon in a dad jacket, like a Walter White-type jacket, he pulls a gun, and then they stuff Ben in the car, but not Ben's friends, and then they just drive yeah. away. Which yeah. seems like very very shoddy like goon work. At that point, don't you have to like bring the witnesses in? Probably, but keep in mind they're not killing him. Yeah. They're using him to get to his brother. So maybe that's why they think all is forgiven as long as they don't kill him. I don't know. But I like his group of friends. We get a multiracial group. We mm-hmm. get white guy who looks like Clay Matthews with the long blonde hair. We get a black guy. And we get a 45-year-old Asian man who is one of my favorite characters in the movie. He just... Because he's actually relatively skilled when we see him fight. Yeah. But he just looks like a dad. He doesn't look like a guy that you would cast in an action movie, so I kind of enjoyed that. But I also want to talk about a a little bit about the strip club and the... Because we get a good amount of TNA later in the movie. A couple sex scenes, Robert Zadar in bed with... I don't know if it was the same woman more than once or like he's in bed with her. And then later on, there's like a really long strip strip tease scene. And then the um, main guy who we still have, we still haven't met the main character, but he has a sex scene also low budget movies. is, I guess you could say an exploitation movie, right? Like, Oh, you don't like to see the, so much of the movie spending time on this stuff. But at the same time, I'm going to say, Sort of like what I was talking about with Menachem Golan is that I'm assuming because Amir Sherevan is Iranian, I don't think he's throwing that in there to be exploitative. I think he's throwing that in there because he thinks that's what American action movies do. I think because that's really his entire oeuvre. He's trying to make an American action movie. And I think I don't know if he had seen Andy Sidaris movies, but he looks at these other action movies like, oh, we need strippers we need sex we need sex with robert zadar i guess why not because that happens in multiple films of his like i don't know it just uh <laughs> it's there's like an innocence about it again i, I just i find that kind of charming in a way yeah he's like trying to approximate as best he can and understands you know all these like staples of of american cinema especially american action cinema which yeah. which is how you get minutes long uh, strip scenes in a movie where uh, we're at like the sixteen minute mark now based on the the plot summary I've given so far and I still don't actually know what the plot of the movie is um, right yeah but but then it kind of starts to lock in place a a, a little bit because um, Vincenzo offers to let Ben off the hook Ben owes him twenty thousand dollars if Ben will have his brother Charlie use his helicopter and fly in people from Mexico to work. Um, Mm -hmm. And Vincenzo says... To, I guess, replace the Mexican laborers? Or is it it about 
It, it's it's also about the two million dollars though that he lost or three million whatever it was. It, it seems like it's it's drug related too, um, which I'll get to yes. in a second. Yeah. Yes. Um, Vin- Vincenzo says Charlie Derringer used to be number one in flying in illegals, and I I want to know how they rank that. <laughs> I I don't understand what, what Forbes that's about. magazine. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. They Forbes top their annual list smugglers. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then Keith, who I then learned at this point in the movie is actually Ben. Uh, he goes to Charlie's house, and then they drive to a bar where there's supposed to be a hotshot pilot who's been drinking since like yeah. Vietnam ended, and. We see that guy get in a fight, and Charlie and Ben break it up. <laughs> and then the drunk pilot is so grateful that he agrees to fly to Mexico with these two guys he hasn't seen in forever. And then, even we, though Charlie was the pilot, what the hell is this? Yeah, and, and then we immediately cut to uh, a helicopter flight to Mexico. And, and so then they get there, and they're told that they need to get these two drug kingpins across the border. And there's a holdup over putting bags on board. And they clearly have drugs in them. And so then there's a firefight. And the the firefight is in like a wooded area. And mm-hmm. it's almost incomprehensible. Like Charlie is just letting off shots. Charlie played by Joe Green, who also was in Maniac Cop, uh, bizarrely enough. No. So Charlie is letting off shots in this wooded area. And then one guy in another area just like falls over. And, <laughs> and, and that's that. And then the, the firefight just kind of ends... And the federales almost immediately pull up, and then Charlie and Ben have to fly out. And I don't even remember what happened to the Nam pilot guy. I think he got shot, but I don't even remember because the shootout was just so, like, scattershot. I thought he didn't even go to Mexico. I thought... I thought they weren't trying to get him to fly. I thought they were. They needed a helicopter, and he gave them the helicopter. You you might be right, but that was not because doesn't he enough. show up later? I thought Charlie is in the movie later at one point, or not? No, not Charlie. Charlie is the pilot. Charlie is the, is the brother or the. I don't. I just I'm confusing myself yep. here, but <laughs> um, but but so like that all happens, and then uh, Mr. Vincenzo he he's made aware of this. And, you know, in classic bad guy fashion, he says, I want Charlie Derringer and his brother dead. And then uh, Robert Zadar, Joey, the idiot son, he wants to tag along when uh, Charlie gets killed. So they raid Charlie's house, but only his brother Ben's fiance is home at first. And then Ben and Charlie come home and then Ben is immediately kidnapped again. And then Charlie gets in another shootout, and Ben gets shot multiple times, and Charlie gets the goons to, like, chase him through another wooded area that mm-hmm. looks suspiciously like the wooded area in Mexico. And, and then eventually Charlie gets shot, and he falls off a cliff into some water but survives. And then he somehow gets to the house of some guy named Chico who agrees to help him. And we don't learn that Ben is actually legitimately dead until it just very dramatically uh, and haphazardly cuts to a sheriff telling his deputies that Ben and Ben's girlfriend are dead, even though we didn't see yeah. them die. So you know, yeah, we de- we definitely didn't see the girlfriend die. I I kind of assumed Ben was dead when he got shot, but and and so then you know Charlie hatches his, his big plan for vengeance. And then we get 
another just like interminably long strip scene. You, you call them sex scenes, and I think that's very generous because the in this one, uh, Robert Zadar Joey, he like gets slapped around by this woman with her top off. He slaps her, uh, and then they fool around for a while, but they just have their shirts off, and then nothing else happens until another one of Vincenzo's goons just like you know interrupts them. And says, your dad wants you. This is where things get really out of control in terms of just, like, what is going on in the moves these people are making. Some other goons, they, like, tail Charlie. And those goons are shaking some guy down. And then there's another shootout, which is at the same strip club from before. And we see the same mm-hmm. stripper dancing again. And then the shootout just which sort of... Which I should also point out, it, you, they repeat locations within this movie. This, you see it from a different angle, but I believe the scene where they have the strip club is also a scene in Samurai Cop and Killing American Style as well. You know, apparently too, uh, I didn't mention earlier, he also used his own production van for car chases, which I, I find endearing in a way until like that van is supposed to be used for these car chases. And then it's kind of lame to have a van... And like all of these car chases. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so then this this shootout, which is like the fifth one of the movie already, it just sort of peters out and like the guys drive off. And then there's another fight where Genza, the Asian guy, and the actual Keith, not Ben, but Keith, fight some goons on a farm as this like woman in a green bikini just like stands there and watches like, she does, she's the sister of the fiance, I think, right? Yeah. She she doesn't even like scream or try to help or do anything. She just stands there and watches this fight. That's weird. That's weird too because she had just not long before she was I mean all the friends are like together, but she in particular was like whatever you have to do, Charlie, we'll be here with you, but then she's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and and so again, that's another scene that sort of peters out. There are these, like, very harsh edits throughout the movie. And then there are also just these, like, just hapless transitions where they're not even that harsh. It's just, like, one scene peters out and then another scene sort of dully begins. And, like, the next scene after this shootout, Chico, one of Charlie's friends, and Fernando, another one of the crew, they're having, like, a mariachi party. And they get run up on at their house. But then... Charlie and Genza show up to save them. And in in this fracas, the bald guy, Joey's like right-hand man, he gets killed, but Joey gets away. Mm -hmm. And then we immediately cut to, again, another immediate cut to like a a very turgid sex, quote-unquote sex scene where Charlie's in bed making out. And this, this cut is like the most insane of the bunch, I think. Because, like, we cut from this, like, shootout to Charlie making out. And then Fernando, Charlie's buddy, interrupts the lovemaking. So there's a lot of, like, coitus interruptus in this movie. Fernando tells Charlie that they know where Joey is now. Even though we just saw Joey run away. So it could not have been that hard to track him. Right. And and so Charlie and Genza go there to where Joey is. And they take out a bunch of bad guys... While Joey just watches his lady friend, and I think it is the same one from before, she does another minutes long strip tease where yeah, she's Yeah, this like, one felt interminably long. Yeah, where Especially she's, because they were cutting back and forth. 
yeah, they're cutting back and forth from the striptease to, like, Charlie and Ginza making their way through, like, the house, you know, kind of going room by room, clearing out all the, the, the baddies. And she's, like, doing this striptease where she's, like, flossing front to back with, like, a comically long pearl necklace. Yeah. And that doesn't really go anywhere. Like, they don't, like, then proceed to have sex or anything. Eventually, Charlie and Ginza break in. And Joey just uses her as a human shield to get away? Yeah. This is Delia Shepard. Yes. She plays a stripper in Killing American Style, a very small role, smaller than this. I always get a little bummed out when there's, like, prolonged nudity like that in movies like this. And it's like, oh, man, you got naked for, like, this movie? But then, like, I, I was made to feel, I guess, a little bit better because, like... She was in, like, Penthouse and stuff like that, so she was at least probably more comfortable. Like, it seems like she was probably, like, okay with this and everything. But still, I'm like, oh, man. So so that happens, and then, like, Vincenzo hears of this raid on his son's house, and, you know, now he's upset because his son has been targeted. And so he shows up to Charlie's friend Chico's place to personally oversee chico get chainsawed to death which is clearly ripping off scarface oh is it is there is there a chainsaw chainsaw thing in scar i get i don't remember that movie too well yeah oh yeah famously because like and even like the reason i it is ripping off scarface i feel like is because like chico gets scarface or gets uh chainsawed but then there's this bizarre moment kind of like in scarface but it's handled much better in scarface where like someone else is forced (laughs) to watch someone get chainsawed but in this case it's from a distance like fernando mm-hmm. chico's friend is watching this and chance he he, he watches and he the, gets away yeah he he watches the chainsawing take place and he doesn't try to stop it he just like no he runs off and like he's an all-time terrible friend for that he gingerly runs off because yes. in the shot where he's hiding behind a cheat a tree and they cut to him, and he and he's spotted, so he turns to run away. But but where they have the actor situated, he's like on kind of a slope, and he probably didn't couldn't get his footing right. So his first few steps are very like cautious, and, yes, <laughs> and not at all the steps of someone who's trying to run for their life. I yes. enjoyed that. Yeah, and, and so he's an all time terrible friend for that for just watching his friend get chainsawed. But then what's weird is he watches him like clearly get chainsawed. Like he's not gonna. Chico's not going to make it out of this. But then Fernando still runs back and is like, oh, Chico's in trouble. We got to help him. Yeah. And then, yeah, like, that's a little. And, and then they're surprised when they, like, show back up and Chico's, like, completely dead. And the deputies, like, the crooked deputies show up and they arrest Charlie. But then he, like, you know, he beats them up and then he drives off as they chase him. And at, at one point, to get away, Charlie, like, jumps quote-unquote, into a river from, like, the riverbank. And it's supposed to be dramatic, but, like, it's clearly not that high of a jump. And so it he just kind of belly flops instead, <laughs> like, into the river. And, you know, somehow... Well, the they river... already they already did their Butch Cassidy moment. They can't yes. do it again. You know, That's true. So this time... Into the thing. This time he just has to belly flop. <laughs> yeah. And, and so eventually, you know, the river carries him away and... He finally has this meetup with Joey in a park. They definitely did not have permits to shoot in this park because, like, they're, like, sneaking around trees and stuff like this. <laughs> and, like, this ends with Joey Vincenzo, uh, Robert Zadar, getting shot to death in an alleyway, R.I.P., 
um, mm-hmm. dispatched in a very ignominious kind of way. And and then the next time we see Charlie after he guns down Joey, he's shirtless at his house, and he's at the dinner table with his girlfriend. And then, Patrick, the most bonkers thing of the entire movie happens, in my opinion. He, again, he's shirtless at the dinner table after he just killed you know a drug kingpin's idiot son. After mm-hmm. numerous friends of his have died, including his brother, he puts a cucumber on a dinner plate. As if it's the main dish. And then he, like, he makes a diagonal cut. He doesn't, like, cut it like you would. Yeah. Like, like, he doesn't, you know, cut it into circular, like, slices like you would with a cucumber. He makes a diagonal cut, and then he tears the hunk off, and then he eats it, and then he just storms off. I mean, it's... I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a comment to make. It's, uh, yeah. just, it's odd. It, it's... I want because Amir Shravan wrote this. I I want to know what his idea was for that. It's like, like it, did he write it in like the very like script writing kind of way where it's like enter uh, Charlie slicing a cucumber, you know, uh, exit Charlie eating a cucumber. Like I want to know how that. And then all, the actor just went nuts or something, yeah, you know? Yeah, and I want to know how that got plotted out. Um, so he we we know he likes cucumbers and he likes to eat cucumbers and cucumbers are delicious. I. Actually, like making uh, cucumber sandwiches from time to time, you know, because I'm a I'm a fancy lad. Um, and and then after the the cucumber has been consumed, uh, Vincenzo and the goons they show up, and so Charlie has to flee, and then it all really actually finally and completely comes to an end with uh, Charlie and Ginza raiding Vincenzo's place, and uh, Charlie shoots. Uh, Vincenzo dead in the mouth, like he shoots him through the mouth, and that kills him. After okay, but you, but you're, but you're, yeah, you're skipping the climactic fight. Oh, I, the I was fist about fight to say between. It. Okay, yeah, because uh, it's he, it's wonderful to see the climax be a twenty five year old man in good shape beating up a seventy year old. Yes. <laughs> like I love this. Yeah, like so, like it's it, he shoots Mr. Vincenzo through the mouth. After one of the just most flaccid final fights you'll ever see, where, again, the age gap is enormous, and the cuts between the punches don't even remotely match, because it's clearly not Carlos Rivas actually taking punches, and so, like, none of the cut, none of the cuts match, none of the cuts match whatsoever, and so you have no idea what's happening in this fight. Like, spatially, you don't know where they are, you don't really know who's getting damaged where, and then again, it ends with Rivas getting shot through the mouth and like just spewing blood out of his mouth, which was actually like kind of cool. Um, you know what that reminded me of? Because because he gets he gets thrown in a hot tub and then he yes. gets shot. But when he spews blood out of his mouth, it's like the exact same shot as when the shark bites into Quint. Yes. In Jaws. Yes. With the, the, because he kind of looks like Robert Shaw does in that movie with the mustache and everything. And the blood that comes out of his mouth, it looks so much like that. And if Amir Shervan weren't Amir Shervan, I would like think that, oh, that's a reference or a nod, but really. And so that's kind of it. And then Charlie and Ginza, they get thanked by the sheriff and they walk off. And then the sheriff, who we only saw in one other scene, gets the last line of the movie where he keeps dropping mm-hmm. F-bombs, and then he goes, I'd better watch my language. And then that's how the movie ends. Yeah, really strange. 
but again, I, I, in context, there's no real context that makes that make sense. But Aldo Ray is the biggest name mm-hmm. in the movie, for whatever it's worth. And he plays the sheriff. Maybe at some point he was supposed to be a bigger role, but he was the guy they had for one day. Everyone else they had for three. You know, it could be something like that. I, I don't really know. but I don't even know if they had him for one day. Uh, they might have had him for like one hour. Well. <laughs> uh, apparently that's not the only time where something like that happens because I was reading like Amir uh, Shravan's other movies like oh, yeah. on, oh, on oh, IMDb. Yes. Do you want to talk about that with Killing American Style? Killing American Style. I don't remember like who has the last line in the movie or anything, but it has a very, very, very weird ending. Is the whole thing is like there's stolen money or something? I can't. I mean, it's it's one of those plots. It's like this yeah. movie. It's like what what's going on? But there's stolen money. There's a ranch worker who gets killed at some point in the movie by um, Robert Zadar, and then the end of the movie, the hero who has all this money when the cops have showed up jim brown and others he gives all of the money which again is stolen to this ranch workers grieving family who just like appears out of nowhere and are on screen for about five seconds but the the movie ends with him giving them all the money it's very strange i remember that being one of the highlights of that movie actually so amir shervan has a penchant i guess for this like Sort of like, it'd be too generous to call it like a deus ex machina kind of thing, but just like out of nowhere and abruptly, just these things happen at the end of the movies that really are not tied to much of anything that you saw before. Would you say it's a reference to, I don't remember if this is the original or the version you've never seen, but The Exorcist when it's just uh, Lee J. Cobb talking about movies? Where it's like, why Why is that how we end the movie? What the fuck does this Lee J. Cobb barely had anything to do in that movie? <laughs> Father Dyer. You go to films? Sure. Well, I got passes, you know. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason. And in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. Maybe, but again, that might be giving Amir Shervant too much credit. No, I, of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah, course. Yeah. So yeah, so the movie kind of ends, and honestly, I, I watched this one and Delta Force back-to-back, and even though, you know, there's a lot to lambast, I enjoyed this way more than Delta Force, because it's just always more enjoyable sometimes when you're watching people that don't have a big budget... And not a lot of big, you know, megawatt talent. Just, like, trying to to get by on what, like, raw materials they do have. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm willing to, like, put up with that. Like, I, you know, genuinely love... And he's more competent than Amir Shravan, for sure. But, like, I genuinely love Herschel Gordon Lewis movies for some of the same reasons. That, like... Ooh, I don't know if I'd say definitely more competent, but... Oh, no, I... I, Sure, I'll get... I I think so. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Uh, For anyone that, like, somehow might not know... Herschel Gordon-Lewis probably most famously did Blood Feast, which is like the OG kind of like torture porn splatter movie back in the 60s. But like guys like him or Amir Shravan or or any of those type of guys that like, you know, made a whole crop of movies. Coleman Francis, those kinds of people. Yeah, that just toiled like this for their whole careers. I'm always willing to at least indulge them because even when it gets bad, there's just like a certain like 
I don't know, breeziness to a lot of them a lot of times. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I'm not 100% sure I agree with enjoying this more than the Delta Force. And I, I think this, uh, we'll get into that, but I think this might be a case of this is not my first Amir Shervan movie. I've mm-hmm. seen the highs or rather the lows that he's capable of. Uh-huh. And to me, I, I understand this is an incompetent movie, but it is more competent than all the other movies that I've seen by him. But that just makes me want to watch the other ones more then. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's and that's fair. Yeah, I, I yeah. will say, I think I said this back when I saw Killing American Style when I did that for this podcast, but I'm like, this just makes me want to see Samurai Cop more. And I haven't seen Samurai Cop since then, so it's, it's I'm really overdue. But I will say, like, I don't think this had any real big laughs for me. Mm-hmm. But there, but there were moments that were you know funny. The 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 scene with the Mexican and Filipino workers. There's a couple of scenes where actors just flat out flub lines, and it's oh, left yeah. in the movie. It's right after that scene when they're when they're uh, talking to the deputy. The deputy flubs his line. He's like, "Well, if you need me to get," and then he's like, "Oh well, if you need me to help." I can get something or something like he says something like that where he says one word and corrects himself, says another word. And then that word that he mistakenly said earlier comes up later in the sentence. And it's like, oh, OK, so it's just he screwed up and, and they use one take or whatever. See, that's, also, why, I th- that's why the much more accomplished Herschel Gordon Lewis instead allows for in Blood Feast to someone to clearly palm their cue card in their hand like on screen because then you yeah. know the line gets delivered stiffly but it gets delivered man you know sure sure <laughs> yeah no um there's there's another more i think th- even this the line when the guy interrupts mr vincenzo and he says the mexican filipino workers are revolting or are striking he doesn't say the mexican and filipino workers he says mexican filipino i think he just I don't think the line was supposed to be said that way, and he just said it. And then they get there, and then they're under the impression only the Mexicans are striking until they also learn that the Filipinos are striking too. So it's like, I don't know what that was, but that made that made me laugh because I thought, like, I thought for a second we were going to see a full line of descendants of Mexican and Mexican mothers and Filipino fathers or something like that working for his company or whatever I, I thought for a moment. So there's a few moments like that where it's just like, oh, okay, that's... It's and and it's a lot of the it's a lot of the stuff that probably doesn't sound that funny when we describe it over here because it's a lots of a lot of shots not matching yeah. a lot of scenes where there's people that are clearly supposed to be in the same location you just know they aren't like I mentioned with Eric Freeman it's it's funny enough it's enjoyable enough yeah no it it is it, like there's enough like all all those kind of flubs are like fun and goofy kind of flubs and again. You know, I think another sticking point with me, too, with this versus Delta Force is this is done in 93 minutes, you know, so except if you're, oh, trying, sure. to, yeah, except okay. if you're trying to take notes on it, like this is a pretty light commitment yeah. to, to bang yes, out. Yes, that's true. Which, which is nice, you know, like the, yes, you get your two B ad breaks every now and then. And exactly. Know, that's that, it. Maybe that was part of it, too, is that like I got ad <laughs> breaks with this versus Delta Force. I watched that through uh, Redbox because uh, it's free to watch on Redbox, uh, oh. and that did not have any ad breaks, even though it was supposed to. So I felt like I was getting away with something. But boy, shucks, howdy, I could have used some of those ad breaks because you know, you know, I, I I mentioned this a long time ago, but I I this is no longer the case. But when I used my old laptop, for some reason, Tubi there was like some mistake with Tubi where they wouldn't run ad breaks 
when I was watching a movie on Tubi, there would be this like pause where I could tell they were trying to cut to an ad break, but it would come immediately back to the movie. Now that I got a new laptop, I have ad breaks, so I, no. I, I I do miss. Maybe I should watch Tubi on my on my old laptop. I still have that. Maybe maybe I can bust it. Should bust it out only for Tubi movies, but you, uh, yeah, you yeah. should you should like keep that thing around solely for that one usage. So then, do like we we want to say what like connections are between those? Is there? Well, any? yeah, sure. I mean, you know, did you spot any? I mean, they're they're both obviously the '80s action kind of thing. We mentioned the scores, kind of sounding like they were lesser versions of of kind of like you mentioned chariots of fire i said hoosiers for delta force and mm-hmm. i think it's get a strong beverly hills cop connection with um uh with i can't think i was going to say killing america style with young rebels excuse me <laughs> um one one movie is made by um an iranian gentleman and the yeah. other movie yeah, is made go. by a guy with a very harsh view of iran uh if the opening sequence of uh delta force <laughs> to teach us anything um but but i think both films are made by yep. filmmakers in america who weren't born in america mm-hmm. and i do think that comes through i know i've talked oh, about yeah. this but i think the the um, kind of the american optimism patriotism whatever you want to call it that that kind of thing comes through as someone Menachem Golan, who's just happy to be in America. At least that's the impression I get. And then Amir Shervan is really, really just trying to make an American action movie. He's just yep try, trying to do it. And uh, you know, he's made his own, almost his own genre of American action movies. I guess you could say so. Well, and you know, there there is something like over and over again throughout cinema history to be said for like immigrants to America or even like people who never actually immigrate to America making movies about America that have some like very poignant observations uh, about Mm -hmm. America and the way different parts of America function. That's not the case with either one of these movies. No, no, these aren't those kinds of movies. But but that's more the case because like these guys just aren't great filmmakers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, if, if, if Sergio Leone wants to say something about the American experience in once upon a time in america i'm gonna let him but i I don't know if i want amir shervan discussing that kind of thing no not so much you already said which of the two movies you prefer you are just to reiterate you are a young rebel stan in this circumstance i'm a young rebel stan and the the phrase young rebels got stuck in my head enough while i was watching the movie that it then made me just want to go listen to uh, Searching for the Young Soul Rebels uh, by Dex's Midnight Runners. Uh, okay, I see. I was, I was just thinking of David Bowie the entire movie. Oh, yeah, I, I could have gone that route too. But um, no, like that was stuck in my head. I was like, this is too close of a, of a name. And so then I walked around and listened to Dex's Midnight Runners. So, you know, maybe that's why I'm also like okay with Young Rebels in the end. No, I, I have to make the decision of which movie I prefer. Uh-huh. Honestly, it's tough because it's so, you mentioned the length, yep. and I don't want to, you know, the, the length disparity, given that I didn't love the Delta Force, the two hours and ten minutes felt pretty long, given that I kind of enjoyed Young Rebels, the 93 minutes or whatever kind of went by fast, but I think I'm going to say the Delta Force, that mm. I prefer that, and the reason, I mean, I don't think it was great or anything, but I think I'm also my views on young rebels are hindered a bit 
by I'm kind of I can't not compare it to these other more enjoyable movies I've seen from Amir Shervan. It's the same reason I'm not a huge fan of the original Halloween 2 is it's just a not as entertaining version of Halloween 1. You know, it's it's just like if I have a better version of the relatively same movie to compare it to, I'm I'm always going to be kind of un, unfairly harsh maybe. But that's just kind of where my brain is and I I sounded like I I enjoyed the Delta Force more than you. I was fully into that first half. Yeah. I was really into it. And then I was into some of the second half. I was into the murder cycle and I was I was into the car chase and that's yeah. about it. But you know, all in all, uh, Delta Force to me was a passable movie. They're both passable movies, but I think if I were to watch one again, I think it would be the Delta Force. I don't feel great about that, but that's what I'm sticking with right now. If all of Delta Force was more like the first half, if the second half oh, like con- yeah. continued the first half, then it would be a lot more lopsided. In, in oh, a hundred percent. Because of- if it if it continues the energy of that first half, you don't have a schlock action film. You have like a really tense, gripping thriller. You have yep. like Charles Bronson in Ten to Midnight or something like that. Yeah, that would be awesome. But like, yeah, it just. It wasn't that, but that's, no. <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, we had to see Chuck Norris shoot people, I guess, you know. It's, it is weird that Chuck Norris is the star, and all of the best stuff in the movie 100% doesn't involve him. I, None that's of it. Like, and I don't think those are unrelated. I, nope. <laughs> like I, Chuck Norris is boring. He just yeah. is. Chuck Norris is very boring. So, Jared, how do you think, especially because you watch these back-to-back, how do you think this works as a drive-in double feature? Like, um, what would I watch uh, first? As like the well, the fir- I mean, you if you want to change the order, go right ahead. What we usually do is because mm-hmm. we pick the movies at random, and then we figure out the order afterwards. And usually, uh, how, how I view it, and I don't know how many times this has been explained in the podcast before, so I'm gonna go ahead and get kind of detailed here, but. To, to me, there aren't too many restrictions on what is a first movie. To me, there's like more specifics about what the second movie is. And to me, the second movie, that's when the kids are asleep. Yeah. That's when you can bust out the boobs. You can get the violence. You can get the really weird. And to me, if you're watching these late at night, the second movie has to be weird and usually like fast paced or something because oh, yeah. it's got to keep you awake. 100%. Because, you know, yeah. three and a half hours or four hours sometimes these double features, however long it ends up being, that second one really needs to keep your attention. Yeah, and, and so even even talking it out, like I would definitely watch Delta Force first because the first hour is like gripping enough that it will like lock you in. And then, you know, the, mm-hmm. second, the second hour peters out so you'll be in a little bit of a lull. But then, again, you get synths like kicking up and moving right away <laughs> in Young Rebels and then you're off to the yeah. races. Yeah, well, and, and to me, too, I think the order works perfectly because, to me, the Delta Force starts out as this serious political thriller. Yep. The second half, it's just a schlock action movie. To me, that eases the transition into what is a schlock action movie from beginning to end. It's a different type of action, sure. We don't have bazookas. We don't have, you know, the budget that Delta Force has in Young Rebels, but... To me, it's like, okay, the first half of Delta Force I was taking seriously. The second half, I can't take so seriously. But you know what? This, the second movie, I'm not even going to try to take seriously because that's what that is. And mm-hmm. I think that 
I think they work really well together in that sense is, um, you know, I, I, as much as I'm not wild about either movies, I, yeah, I, 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 I do like the pairing as, as weird as it is on, on paper. I think it kind of works. Yes. It, it, in, in the most bizarro of ways, it, it, it finds a way. <laughs> as Ian Malcolm foretold. Well, thank you for joining me, Jared. And Absolutely. Um, Take the time to just reiterate, if you want to, what podcast you're on and everything. I'm on a, uh, a movie podcast uh, that I do for work called uh, Streamed and Screened. And most recently, we had a... Uh, actually, we've had episodes since then, but one of the most recent ones that I was on was a horror movie one, since we're in uh, the spooky season. And we talked about our favorite uh, horror movies of the, uh, the year so far. Um, so if you want to nitpick with my list you can go listen to that watcher was on it which means it gets my stamp of approval i thought watcher was great excellent movie so i do that and then i'm on another podcast called the on iowa politics podcast so if you live in iowa or you're just a politics sicko who will listen to any politics podcast you can find uh you can also check me out on the uh, on iowa politics podcast uh every week where i uh I have some trenchant uh, insights, but I also just kind of crack wise for a while, too. All right. Thanks once again, Jared, for joining me. And listeners, this is what we've got coming up next week. We've got another bizarre pairing, but even more so. I, I, dare I say this is the most bizarre pairing we've ever had, because we have the 1974 classic French erotic drama, Emmanuel, along with... The 1975 film, which is available on Tubi, called Super Dragon vs. Superman. This is a Bruce exploitation feature that also goes by other names, including on Tubi, Bruce Lee vs. Superman, I think is the name of it there. So, some weird-ass mid-70s foreign movies to, to pair next week, and I am looking forward to that. Jim will be back with me next week. Thanks again, Jared, and Absolutely. all you listeners out there, I hope you have a great start to your month here in November, and um, we hope to catch you here next week. <laughs>